one, because, but uh, just in a minute, because I prepared everything that I was going to say earlier today, and just at the last minute, there were two lines came into my mind that I wanted to be sure to say before I was finished with an opportunity to teach in this retreat, that when I thought about them, they're both germane to what I want to say, and um, in a certain way, they both are the point of what I want to say. And one, I wanted to mention that uh, on the very first retreat that I ever went on, which was a weekend retreat in a house in San Jose, a private home in San Jose, with maybe 20 people on retreat there for a weekend, too crowded, <laughs> too uncomfortable, too weird. My, my husband had convinced me to go. I was unhappy about most of it, all of it maybe. And I had a terrible headache because nobody had told me that there was not going to be any coffee there. And, any, and uh, if you don't have caffeine and you're used to it, you get a terrible headache. So I spent most of the weekend thinking about And he dropped me off, so I couldn't leave. And <laughs> I spent most of the weekend thinking about how, how I was going to meet him and what I was going to say when I met him. <laughs> but uh, when you think about it, a month and a half later, I was on a plane going up to Toledo, Washington to sit for two weeks. So there must have been something that I really got there. And I think that what I really got, walking back and forth, and sitting, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, I walked in the living room of this particular home, and on the mantelpiece, there was one of those redwood burls that you could buy in a, in a uh, national park store with uh, uh, little sisters of friends forever and home sweet home written on the burl. This particular burl said... Life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And every time I walked back and forth and I saw that little sign, there was something in me that's, that thought, well, if that's what they're doing here, that's okay. Every once in a while, my husband, of course it's now you know, 35 years or so of practice, my husband will say to me, so, so, uh, you see any difference in you since you started practicing? Uh, <laughs> And uh, I say, yes, you know, I, th I think I became kind. And he, we have a little routine. I say that, and then he says, you were always kind. And then I say, because it's true, I got kinder. And I think that's really true. Because something about me became more alert, more aware, more unable to not see the suffering situation that we're all in being in a life more determined not to cause extra suffering for anyone. Life is so difficult. And the other, the other one that I wanted to start with was um, an instruction in a book that I read a long time ago called The Way of the Pilgrim. I don't remember who wrote it. Do you know it, Donald? The Way of the it was uh, anonymous in the middle of the 19th century. A middle of the 19th century... Christian monk, um, Russian, yeah. Russian, Russian, Orthodox. Russian Orthodox, Orthodox monk, uh, whose practice was solo uh, uh, wanderer, uh, talked about his practice that he had gotten from his teacher, and uh, the instruction that he had was pray without ceasing. And I was so touched by that. And 
When I think about it now, I often tell that to people that I'm teaching, particularly on meta retreats, because I really want to make the point when they're on meta retreats, and one of the practices that we do here, although we can't be doing it in our life while we're walking about and talking to people, although we do it in our heart with our attitude, but here we can really sit here all day and use phrases of benevolence, phrases of well-wishing, over and over and over again, not because we have to be reminded of them, but because it's the over and over and over that creates a concentrated mind with a really sharp focus, the better to be able to see clearly what's true about life experience, that it's, everything is temporal, nothing lasts, that everything is connected to everything else, everything is interbeinged to everything else, so that everything that happens is the fruit of karma forever and ever of everything that's ever happened. And that uh, threaded through it is the motif of suffering when we are, when the mind struggles from being separated from what is dear to it. And we always are because things are dear to us and everything changes. We get old, we get sick, we lose friends. We, our hopes are dashed, we hope for something and it doesn't happen. Those are what you see if you really look. And Pray Without Ceasing is both um, a, um, a literal instruction for being on a metta retreat, over and over and over again, bringing the mind, bringing the attention to the, the phrases of well-wishing to establish a deeper concentration and in our lives, to pray without ceasing in the sense of being awake in every moment to what can I do in this moment to heal it, to improve it. Certainly, what can I do in this moment not to make it worse? That The definition of mindfulness really is not only the clear awareness of what's happening outside and inside, and the emotions that come up to meet what's happening and the state of the mind that meets it, but the intention to maintain a curious, warm, a warm curiosity so that we can hold it in balance and respond wisely. That without the intention to act, we're not doing this for any other reason than to be able to act with kindness in a beleaguered, suffering world. So pray without ceasing makes a lot of sense to me. And actually, it's deepened in its meaning to me over the years. I've said it a lot, and every time I teach it, I get it a little bit better. So here's a Dalai Lama story. Um, in 1993, I went to a conference in uh, Santa Fe, and uh, it, was, uh, 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 it was in a big hotel, and the whole hotel was taken over by the conference so that everybody in that hotel was there for a week long of teachings. And uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was going to teach on chapter five or six. It's the chapter on patience from the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Bodhisattva is a term for a person who has dedicated all of their life, however long and however many, but total dedication to liberating beings from suffering, which is a huge thing to think about. And 
I used to think to myself, well, how could I personally meet all the beings? It, it's not about personally meeting all the beings. <laughs> it's about really dedicating oneself so that all the beings one does meet, one meets with that intention. It's completely a connected practice. Sometimes people think of contemplatives as isolating themselves, but I think not at all. I think contemplatives, in, in the sense that we are, are preparing ourselves to meet every single person and every single thing with a clear mind and an open heart in order to really address the fact that the world and life is full of suffering. So here was the Dalai Lama, and he was giving teachings on the chapter in the guide on patience. There are, uh, there are six, in the Tibetan tradition, there are six... Um, Perfections, the perfection of uh, generosity, morality, patience, effort, concentration, and wisdom on behalf of all beings. And we are, without naming them specifically, now we're doing this, now we're doing that. In fact, in everything we do all day long here, whether it's washing the dishes or holding a door or bringing our attention to our changing breath or honestly wishing well to all beings everywhere, we are doing all of those. We are working on all of those together because they are all actually woven all together. So His Holiness uh, was reading the chapter on patience and uh, he would read a verse in, uh, in Tibetan. He'd read a verse and uh, then he'd translate it into English and then he would discourse on it, and then he'd read the next verse, and he'd translate it, and then he would discourse on it. And this went on for the whole entire week, five days, uh, up through midday on Friday. And uh, in each case, he'd read uh, the patience that one was expected to cultivate was specifically patience when your anger was aroused. So it was really a counteractive to anger being aroused. And it, each of the verses was a different reason why anger might arise and an explication of how you could maintain the poise in your mind to not respond with anger. So that one of them might have been, suppose someone hits you with a stick, should you, and anger arises. One should reflect. Am I, uh, am I mad at the stick? It was a stick that hurt me. And then you say, well, no, and of course not. It wasn't the stick that hurt me. It was the person who was holding the stick. And so should I be mad at the person who was holding the stick? Well, you have to think about how did the person who was holding the stick and wielding it, how did he come to be doing that? Maybe he had the kind of parents who didn't take care of him or parents who taught him to behave that way towards people. Maybe we should be mad at that person's parents. How do you know what to be mad at? In any case, every paragraph, one after another, there would be a reason why it doesn't make sense for you to let your anger be aroused. Someone is mad at you about something that you did. You could think to yourself, uh, or somebody hits you in some way, and you could think, I wonder what I must have done in a past life to now merit being hit by this person. Or you could think, I wonder what's going to be this person's uh, karma from having hit me. 
and feel bad for them in advance that probably they don't have friends if they go around hitting people. You could, you could really do all kinds of things to diffuse anger as it arises. My favorite one is suppose someone says something to defame your good name in a public way and uh, makes it public a bad opinion about you that you had done something or that you are a certain way. And he said one should reflect. Is that criticism true? He says, if it's true, you should be happy that that person pointed that out to you because now you would be able to make amends and fix yourself up and this person is in fact a teacher of you. And then it said, what if it's not true what they said about you? And it, the text says, if it's not true, what's the problem? <laughs> So it's brilliant. It's a brilliant because I translate it into modern day times in my own mind. I think, what's the problem? If somebody defamed me in a public way, you know, I, I would not be happy. I have to get a public retraction or this or that. So if it's not true, what's the problem? I think this is genius. This is really genius. Imagine they have a mind and say, well, you could say that. But anyway, the point I wanted to make was it went on and on and on for the whole week. And when he read the last paragraph of this whole chapter, on Friday, just approaching midday, uh, he read the chapter, and he finished, and he talked about it, and he was sitting, and all of a sudden, he kind of fell over, like this, with his head in his hands, and he's got 2,000 people sitting out there, and he falls over like this. Everybody sits, and you think... Uh, maybe he had a stroke, you know, because suddenly it fell over like that. It looked very bad. And I, who tend to have alarmed ideas, I right away think about <laughs> Or even scaling down from the stroke, maybe as a sudden headache or something, it fall over like that. And after a while, he, you see he's shaking, and then he gets up, and he's got a handkerchief, and he's wiping his eyes because he's crying. Because it was so touching to me to realize that he was so moved by this long and thorough, absolute proof that anger rising up didn't do anybody any good. And it wasn't as if I thought to myself, how many times has he read this text in his life? And how many times has he explicated it? And it still touches him so much. I was really, really moved. I think that's what we're meant to see, that, that, that when we say, um, we want to see what's true, what's, what's really true in life. We want to understand it. This is Nyoshal um, Kempo Rinpoche talking about if we, if we really appreciated that life is difficult and everybody has to deal with their mind. Circumstances of people are different. You know, sometimes we think of suffering as being the various, as, as interchangeable with painful. But some people have lives that are manifestly more painful than others. You know, all of us here are sitting in Spirit Rock. It's warm, it's dry, it's relatively speaking, safe. We have clean food and clean water and quiet bedrooms. 
and the whole world doesn't have that. But even letting aside the different levels of pain that human beings have in the world, the level of suffering that the Buddha is talking about addressing is the suffering in everyone's mind from the stories that they tell themselves, from the way that they respond to what's going on, from the pain of a mind that's filled with afflictive emotions like greed and envy and jealousy, rage. In the space of one's own mind, the mind that's tied up in addictive demands and isn't free. This is Nyoshal Kempo. His instructions for meditation, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten relentlessly by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the unceasing fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Samsara is the level of incarnation, the level of people living and beings living alive in this world. I love that. Rest in natural great peace. Let's just do a one-minute experiment. One of my... uh, One of my colleagues and friends and teachers, um, Ajahn Amaro, who's now teaching in London, he's the abbot of a monastery in London, says this for his instruction. So you do the instruction. I'm going to give you the instruction now. You don't have to sit special. Sit wherever you are and do this instruction. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And then just stay that way. Only be attentive to whatever arises to disturb the natural peace. When you notice it, it will disappear and you can rest in that natural great peace. Did you feel good when you did that? I love that. That's my favorite thing. It's one of my favorite things. I do that a lot. Rest in natural great peace. I actually love the way he says that. I hope I said it the same way. Because when he says rest in natural great peace, as if one's mind, exhausted by karma and neurotic thought, says, oh yeah, there's a natural great peace. I forgot about that. I'll just rest there for a while. Thank you very much for reminding me. That's just what it's like. You take that home as a takeaway from this retreat. Rest in natural great peace. Krishnamurti, who was a spiritual teacher early in the 20th century, 
said about meditation, he said, you don't need to meditate. He said, you just look around and you see the truth of things. It took me a long time, for a long time I used to say, you know, I, I can't, I, I look around and I'm not particularly being edified by, what should I look at? But now, at 30, 10, and 20, and 30 years have gone by, I think look around makes a lot of sense. Um, if you really, really look around, I notice that I am getting more sensitive to, well, here's the thing that happens. In my, I went to, in the last uh, one, two, three, four years, at least three of my grandchildren finished college somewhere or another, and I went to their graduation. And I find now, as, I, as I'm getting older and older, that I'm so moved. I, I actually tear up when they start with pomp and circumstance, you know? <laughs> Don't you? It's like a whole fresh crop of people come out, and they're coming out of all these doors, and around me, because oh, here I'm there with my family, and then there's other families around, and I hear the buzz around me, everybody around saying, there she is, there he is, there she is. Because everybody's coming in, and they're far away, and they're in cap and gown, and they all, more or less, unless your person is particularly tall or particularly small, they all look more or less like the same from far. But there she is, there she is. And it's right away a lesson in we appreciate everybody, and ours is really exciting to us. That's number one. That's like the big television and the little television. We are really interested in that little program on the television. That's good. We're supposed to be. But I look around at these people, and then I tear up more because I think, here's all these beaming people. And I'm thinking collectively, how many nights did they sit up doing algebra homework with one of these people? How many 2 a.m. in the morning trips to the emergency room to have an appendectomy did they do? How many nights did they sit up because somebody didn't come home on time and worry about them? And then I think to myself, how many people aren't here because people didn't come home on time and something terrible had happened to them? So I'm, I'm actually holding the space, I find, for the people who didn't come home. And on that very day, their parents, wherever they are, are really feeling badly about it. If you look around and you really look, not at what's happening, but what's true about what's happening, these people marching in have amazingly survived the middle of the nights and the appendectomies and the traffic accidents and the final exams and are there. And whether they'll continue to be well for how long or how short, it's so tenuous, this whole life. If you look around, you think it's a miracle that we're all here. That means that every single one of us has avoided a fatal accident or a fatal illness up till now. That's a great thing. I think it's a miracle that we're here. You know, think about, you know, rejoice, really. On missing the people who aren't here, there was a really touching article uh, in the New York Times last Sunday about it's an interview with a 91-year-old man who uh, was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was in, uh, in the army in the Second World War, and uh, because of how quickly people died, I and mean, when you read this and you remember. What, what warfare is like, it, it's so clear that 
no sane country, no sane world would have a war. It's a bizarre thing to take young people in the best of health and send them out primed to kill each other. And here's this old man, and he's talking about the, how he became right away a master sergeant because so many people died and he got promoted. And he was talking about his elder brother, older brother. And he said, Johnny went off and joined, uh, signed up uh, a year before I did. He was my, you know, two years before I did, he's my older brother. And he was the best guy in the world. I loved him so much. And when he was going away, I saved up all my money so I could buy him a watch. I bought him an Elgin watch. And uh, when he was killed, he was so horribly wounded that the only way they could distinguish who he was was his Elgin watch. And he said, I've been thinking about that all these years, and every time I think about it, I cry again. And I think to myself, if we paid attention to what we do, if we looked around in the world, we'd say, this is crazy. Let's not do this anymore. Let's, let, let's like pay attention. I think, I think the world is waking up. I'm hopeful. I think it's in our DNA to try to survive. The Buddha said, hatred is never ended by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. The Buddha talked about his mission as finding and discovering the cause of suffering. His solution, uh, it occurred to me, as I was writing this, was that I, I think there must be some popular song called Love is the Answer. Because I thought, I thought I'll say that. That's what it was his solution to uh, life is so difficult. And I thought, oh, some people are going to think, well, that's not true. His solution was wisdom. The wisdom to see that things are, uh, that... Um, uh, the suffering in life is caused by unrecognized greed, hatred, and delusion. That's true. That's always true. But the antidote to greed and hatred and delusion is love. And when the mind is at ease, and greed and hatred and delusion, and all the subcategories of that, envy and jealousy and rage and uh, fury, don't arise. When the, when the mind feels loved and loving. That's the amazing thing, that when we behave in a way that's loving, we feel loved. It's a feedback loop. We don't really have to wait for someone to love us. When we love, uh, there's a feedback loop that happens. It, I imagine it happened for lots of people this week. I know, I know it happened to lots of people that I was with, that when we busy being loving people, sending out loving thoughts. We are warmed by our own living thoughts. It's as if we build a little fire in our own body and keep ourselves warm with it. As it really it is wisdom. Love is the same as wisdom. It's, a, it's, it's what would happen if wisdom prevailed. The wisdom that says... Suffering is caused by greed and hatred and delusion. If that prevailed, if we got that, and we turned it around to non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, dedication to kindness, which would be love, 
everybody's mind would calm and all we would have left is the inclination to love. You know, I don't think we need to take compassion lessons and uh, um, empathetic joy lessons. I think that they come, or even friendliness lessons, I think that human beings are a companionable species. I mean, there are some people who like to be by themselves more than anything else. But by and large, we're companionable people. We start conversations at bus stops or in airplanes. Uh, I think most of us do. Somebody says hello, we say hello back. We were talking, I don't know whether it was here or the last week teaching, and saying, I, I feel like it's, if I get into an elevator and I'm traveling up and somebody else is there, I feel sort of honor-bound to say something to them. It's as if I didn't notice them otherwise. You, know? <laughs> you say something like, it's wonderful to have this rain, or something. You know, that, uh, that, uh, it's, it's a habit. of. My mother had that habit before me. It's very embarrassing to my father, by the way, because <laughs> she talked to everybody on the subway sat down and started in, and he would say, ah, she goes. But it's our birthright, you know. If, if we are consoled by our parents, then we become consolers. And it comes out in terms of goodwill, hello in the elevator, compassion, oh, I'm so sorry, can I help you when something is difficult? And hooray for you when something is wonderful. Because we are really not walking around ourselves. We're walking around ourselves in connection to everyone. We are actually in connection with everybody. We're just establishing it when we say something about it. We're, we're sort of cashing in, if you will, on the fact that we're all connected. It becomes palpable once you say something about it. It's like, yeah, I, I, I think I can tell you this story. It's a long story. I've tried so short. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in an airport van going from Santa Barbara to LAX some years ago. And I was sitting up in front with the driver because that's where I like to sit. And it was very early in the morning. And it was foggy. And dark. I didn't tell this story, did I? The other, I told it last weekend. That's how come I suddenly had the feeling, oh boy, maybe I just told this. No, it's a a wonderful story, so therefore, here you go. I'm sitting up in front with this driver, and we're driving along, and it's 4.30 in the morning, and it's foggy and uh, dark outside, and driving along, and I'm sitting pretty quietly. I knew the driver, because he had driven me to this retreat place three or four days before, so I, I, I knew his name was Mohammed, I knew he came from... Uh, India a few years before with an intention to start a business with his cousin. They were going to have a restaurant, but the restaurant didn't succeed. So now he was driving a van, and he was hoping to be able to save up enough to bring his family. So we're riding along, and uh, all of a sudden he says, "Uh, do you think the people in the back, they were all people sleeping in the back, but they were at the same conference I was. He said, you think the people in the back would mind if I pulled pulled off the highway? There's a, uh, a Wendy's coming up on the highway and got a coffee. I'm pretty sleepy. I said, no, no, nobody's going to mind. <laughs> Pull over. That'll be, that's, that's, <laughs> Matter of fact, if you want, I'll drive. <laughs> he said, no. He said, no, I can make it to there. So I turn in my seat because now I'm awake. and I'm, you know, I'm 
So, uh, and, and I knew him a little bit, but I was determined to talk to him to keep it going. So I, I, I say, so Mohammed, um, you're a Muslim, right? And he said, look at me. He said, yeah, I am. I said, so you pray every day? He said, of course. I said, uh, five times? He said, yes, of course I do. I said, that's great. I said, what do you say when you pray? He, looked, he said, well, you know, it's not in English. I said, that's all right. I'd like to hear it just the way it is. So he says a little bit of a prayer for a little bit of a while. And then he stops. He says, that's it. And I said, so, uh, Mohammed, uh, can, he said, but there's different prayers. You can say extra ones more than that. So I said, Mohammed, do you pray? Do you have to pray long or short? How long do you have to pray? And he said, it doesn't matter how long you pray. He says, some people stand and pray all day long, but it's meaningless. He says, it only matters if you pray, if it's connected to your heart. And I said, how do you get it connected to your heart, Mohammed? And he waved his hand as a gesture, like through the, through the windshield of this van, which you couldn't see anybody out there anyway, but I think it was meant to show that the world was out there in this gray and rainy pre-dawn. And he said, you know, you just look around outside, you look at everybody. And he said, it's like everybody has been thrown into an ocean and nobody knows how to swim. And everybody's struggling and trying not to drown. He said, when you look at that and you get that, then you connect with your heart. So then, really this is true because it's wonderful. I said to him, Mohammed, there's, a, there's the Wendy, you going to pull off? He said, no, I don't have to, I'm awake. And that's a particularly wonderful story because people ask the Buddha, are you a god? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, are you a regular person? And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, what are you then? And he said, I'm awake. So I, want, so I wanted to speculate a little bit about if a person was awake, what would they see? What would they know? They'd know that everyone is struggling and doing the best they can. And perhaps even more important, they'd know that consoling feels good. Consoling the other person, consoling yourself. Consoling is a soothing gesture. We console crying babies. We pick them up, we hold them, we move with them, we pat them. We say, it's okay, it's okay. We talk to, we talk to babies. You know, we say, you know, you talk to a baby and you say, so listen, when you get five years older, we'll get piano lessons, relax, etc. We say anything, but they should hear the sound of a voice talking to them kindly. You did, didn't you? I mean, that's, I mean you have to make conversation. So. <laughs> you know, it's amazing when... When we pay attention, you've been here all week, and you could, many people reported, I felt great, I felt good, I felt wonderful. And then all of a sudden, I had this thought, and the thought all of a sudden exploded into my whole mind, and my whole mood went down, and all of a sudden, I was filled with, and they name one or another afflictive emotions. I was filled with jealousy, I was filled with annoyance, I was filled with longing, and I, I, I knew that I was no longer in my beautiful, expansive space, and it all closed in on me. 
but I couldn't do anything to get out of it. And the and that that happens because we get so confused by those afflictive states. They usually call they they're often called in the tradition they're called hindrances because they hinder clear seeing, because they discombobulate the mind so much. But uh, I actually prefer to call them afflictive emotions because they hurt so much. They're really afflictive. You know, I've, I've, people who know me know I, I really love um, opera. And I'm very happy now that they have HD movies of the opera uh, all, year, all year during the season and over the summer, uh, reruns. And so you can go to your local movie theater and see opera right in front of you. And it, it, I recently saw Louisa Miller. Louisa Miller is a Verdi opera with the same plot of so many other operas that the father who's a count who is on, in bad financial ruin has planned for his daughter to marry the count in the next county who's in good shape financially. And he gets the news from one of his serving people that the daughter has decided she's in love with somebody else, not in the same financial means and does not want to marry that count. And very early in the opera, so they uh, very uh, grand opera is very non-nuanced. They get to the point right away. <laughs> so he sings out, and I'm reading the, the the super titles. He sings out, "Anger is arising in me." Then about two lines later, he sings out, "I'm filled with rage," and then about three lines after that, he says, "Speak to me of nothing but vengeance." So it's gone from the person gives the news. He says, anger is arising in me. I'm filled with rage. Speak to me of nothing but vengeance. But I'm thinking, as I, you know, as I thought about it, as I'm sitting in the opera, I actually reached over and got, my husband always has a pen in his shirt pocket. I reached over and get a pen out of his shirt, shirt pocket. So I'm writing on my program that that happened because I knew I wanted to teach about it because the first of those realizations is a moment of mindfulness. Anger is arising in me. After that is a, is, a, is a blip of non-mindfulness so that it turns right away into I'm in a rage and vengeance is mine. In, in terms of what the Buddha taught us of wise effort, every moment is a fork in the road. Anger is arising in me is a moment of mindfulness. The fork in the road is one fork goes to I'm in a rage and that speak to me of nothing but vengeance. And the other four goes to, goodness, I'm in a rage. I mean, I, I, anger is arising in me. Let me relax. Let me just think this over a little bit. What am I going to do about my financial situation and my daughter's love? And what would be a good thing to do and figure it out so that everybody doesn't end up in a terrible state, which they do at the end. <laughs> so the impulse to soothe has to happen right after the hint of the afflictive emotion arises. I actually told that to some members of my family and when it first happened, because I thought, you know, ding, 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 anger is arising. So uh, since that time, it's become like a thing we say to each other. Somebody says something that annoys somebody else. They say, anger is arising in me. <laughs> so you can know that you just annoyed them. <laughs> But it's a way of letting everybody know and take care of it without messing it up completely. You know, we're born with an impulse to soothe.
toddlers in nursery school, uh, in, in, in play school before even nursery school, toddlers in, in childcare, uh, somebody starts to cry, somebody else picks up a toy and takes it over to them. They, they actually get it that somebody else is in difficulty. When, and many of you may have had the experience when you're in a supermarket and you're shopping and some baby somewhere is crying that you can't even see but you can hear. And you feel like doing something for it. Somebody in a plane, is a baby is um, crying away uh, several seats up from you. And you start wishing, oh... I wish that mother would let, uh, feed that baby so it would be swallowing, so its ears would open, so it wouldn't be in so much pain. Our impulse is to notice pain and do something about it. I was thinking about, we take the precept, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, which is the first of the five precepts, which pretty much covers all five anyway, but uh, it, in, in it's a summary of all the five. But I'm thinking really of thinking of precepts in terms of, uh, those are proscribed, uh, things that are prescribed. I undertake the precept to add kindness to every situation, not only to not do that stuff, but to do stuff that makes a difference, to really use mindful awareness to know what's happening, what should I do now? And I think that when I thought about it today, uh, I can keep my mind loving which would make me generous. I actually think that saying hello to somebody on an elevator is a generous act. I don't have to, but it's a generous act. It's a kindness. Maybe some people it annoys, but... Oh, you want to know what? I don't have time to, to really tell you this at length, but I loved it. It was in last week's newspaper. It was a woman who found out that... woman who... Uh, she was a, a woman play who's... Um, a performance artist was in a green room sharing with Yo-Yo Ma and with a whole audience getting together. And she said, you know, I have this recurrent fantasy of uh, doing a concert where the whole audience is dogs. And he said, really? I have the same fantasy. <laughs> so so uh, in, uh, in June of 2010... On the steps of the Sydney Opera House, if you could see this, you'd see a bunch of dogs sitting all on the steps of the Sydney Opera House. She did a concert for dogs, uh, you know, with synth- you know, electronic music, all in a very low tones, so it didn't irritate the dogs. And, but they all sat very quietly. Actually, the people couldn't hear it because it's at a tone below where people can hear. But all the dogs sat there. And when the, when the uh, quietly, nicely... The concert ended, the dogs began to bark. <laughs> she said, it was a beautiful sound. They barked for five minutes. That was one of the happiest moments of my life. <laughs> so I wanted to, you know, for several reasons, you make a whole bunch of dogs happy, and it's a happy moment in your life. You make other people happy, you feel better. She was repeating that concert, by the way, uh, in New York City last Monday night. And they had um, 350 uh, listening devices for the first 350 people who showed up so that the people could hear the concert as well as the dogs. <laughs> you know, when, when you think about it and think about the five 
the five, those six uh, paramis, those six virtues that uh, we're meant to undertake. They really are, I undertake the precept to sweeten the pot of the world, to make it a better place with the generosity of spirit, generosity of things, sharing, with morality. You know, you think about morality. Morality is not, um, morality is a very kind act because you give people the gift of safety. You know, we, we're safe here. You can leave any stuff you want on your zafus, on your zabatans. No one is going to take it. I was in a retreat once and somebody left an orange on the windowsill and nobody took it. And nobody took it, and nobody took it, and took it. Finally got all that white mold on it, but <laughs> nobody was touching somebody else's orange. It gives you a very good feeling. Somebody finally, maybe the person had left, and the orange was getting. Uh, effort was one of the paramis. You know, when I told you the story about Louisa Miller, what's required moment to moment at crossroads, and there's a crossroad every moment, is, is the moment-to-moment uh, habitual, after a while, easeful, because it's a habit decision, not to choose the road that leads to suffering and to choose the road that leads to happiness, which, if you have the support of having taken the precepts. You know, we've all really taken the bodhisattva vow, even though we don't know that we have just by being here and practicing all of these and by making the intention to sweeten our minds for our own happiness and for our own ability to be a force for the good in the world. The end of the Dalai Lama story is on Friday noon, and the afternoon was going to be the last part of the conference, his Holiness said, okay, we're going to have a lunch break now. And we come back, I'll do the um, Bodhisattva initiation. So, I guess he said, does anybody have any questions? Or someone in the back put up their hand, indicating that they had a question. Big, 2,000 people. And so the person, what's your question? And someone in the back got up and said, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic and I'm devout. And I wonder if there's anything wrong with me coming this afternoon and taking the Bodhisattva vow. And His Holiness thought about it a little bit. And he said, I don't think so. He said, I think it's all right. So then we all left for lunch. And then two hours later, we were all back in. You know, it's very complex to go in when His Holiness is teaching because you have to come in at a certain time. You have your seat and you have to sit in your seat that matches your, your entry tag. So it's a, it's a complicated thing to get in. And then His Holiness comes in by himself and comes in and makes his entrance and does his three ceremonial bows, sits down on the chair that's there. And I thought he was going to start in on the initiation. And he said, uh, where's that person who asked about the being part of another religious tradition and doing these vows? He said, I thought about it over the lunch, and I, you know, I thought this is so great. He's, he's got one person had a wobbly mind over this, and he's got a lunchtime, and he spent it thinking about it, maybe not the whole time, but he said, I've been thinking about it, 
And I really think it's all right, he said, because when you think about it, compassion is compassion and a blessing is a blessing. And I've thought about that so much. You know, I think about it in terms of the bottom line understanding of every venerable um, religious tradition is that what we all want is peace. Catholic Mass begins with peace be with you and also with you. And it ends with that, go in peace. And Jews pray and say, grant us peace, your most precious gift. Peace be with you and also with you. Thich Nhat Hanh said, peace in every step. And the other night, but I forgot his name, A.J. Musty said, uh, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. To be restoring one's own peace by consoling oneself. Everything we do, saying blessings is consoling ourselves. Even saying blessings for other people is a consolation to ourselves. We are the primary beneficiaries of all our wishes. Whoever we're wishing to, we are the primary beneficiaries. Who knows if the, benef- if the people we are wishing to benefit? I benefit. My own heart is the only one that can be transformed. And maybe when I'm with these people who I blessed before, my relationship with them will be changed, and then our relationship will be changed. But my relationship with other people will be changed. Everybody is affected by it because everything is involved with everything else. I've been reading a book called um, To Heal a Fractured World. It's written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is, actually, he's Sir Jonathan. He was knighted in 2005. He's the chief rabbi of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, educated at Oxford and Cambridge, and knighted in 2005. And the people who wrote... um, uh, praises for his book include Sister Mary Boys of the Union Theologi- Theological Seminary and uh, the Christian Century. Everybody knows. He says, happiness as opposed to pleasure is a matter of a life well lived, one that honors the important, not just the urgent. Happiness is the ability to say, I lived for certain values and acted on them. I was part of a family, embracing it and being embraced by it. I was part of a community, honoring its traditions, sharing its griefs and joys, ready to help others, knowing they were ready to help me. I did not only ask what I could take, I asked what I could contribute. To know that you made a difference, that in this all-too-brief span of years, you lifted someone's spirits, relieved someone's poverty or loneliness, or brought a moment of grace or justice to the world that would not have happened had it not been for you. These are as close as we get to the meaningfulness of a life, and they are matters of everyday life rather than heroic virtue. I think what we do, people have been asking me all day long, how how do I take this into the rest of my life. And 
we have some teaching times yet to talk about that. And Donald will teach tomorrow, and John will teach on Sunday, and we'll talk about it all the time, as if being away from here is different from being here. And manifestly, it's different from being here. But it's also not different from being here. Wherever, in terms of the mind, wherever you go, there it is. Here it's a little quieter. <laughs> but these habits of keeping the mind and the heart sweet and relational are the habits that we hope to take with us, that I hope to take with me, so that I will live for as long as I live through my connections with others. I think that's the best we can hope for. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.